Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition we'll feature Evolution of Colour, Part 6 of the Life of Darwin and Pained Fish. First up, here's the news. This week, Fish and Fisheries have published a paper called Can Fish Really Feel Pain? where they argue that because fish lack the types of nerves that humans use to feel pain, that fish couldn't possibly feel pain. They surveyed all of the published papers on the subject and found that where behaviour seemed to change, it was where the experiment was badly designed. The standard test for pain across all animals is whether or not they learn from painful stimulation to change the behaviour to avoid the same circumstances in the future. The authors of Can Fish Really Feel Pain surveyed all of the literature to look for published evidence that C-fibre nerves that allow mammals to feel pain also exist in fish, and found that the literature says fish have different neurology to mammals. They conclude that since the behavioural research was done badly and can't be considered to indicate one way or the other, that they're entitled to judge just on the basis of differences between the fish nervous system and the mammal nervous system, and conclude that fish don't feel pain. Looking at the studies listed in Wikipedia's pain in fish entry, I can see what they mean. None of the studies appeared to have tested for fish learning from painful experiences to change their behaviour to avoid those circumstances. It seems to me that the authors, biologists from Australia, Canada, Germany and the United States, haven't read the Crab article in the February 2013 Journal of Experimental Biology, which gave an elegant method for determining that crabs do feel pain. Because they trade off a safe hidey hole that will protect them from predators for avoiding the pain of an electric shock that they've learned will come from their favourite happy place. If fish were given the same types of tests, then we could know for sure whether they make the same types of trade-offs. Until that time, given that crabs, lobsters and prawns also don't have many C-fibre nerves, but definitely feel pain, I think we need to suspend judgement on whether fish feel pain, because in reality, we just don't know yet. Probably best that we err on the side of least cruelty. Mark Changizi is a theoretical neurobiologist and director of human cognition at 2AI Labs. Mark Jeezy has a different view of how the ability to see red and green colours evolved in humans and what it's for. And he's applied this with the result that he's actually been able to give the ability to see red and green to people who've previously been blind to red and green colours. I began by asking him to explain the difference between animal colour vision and human colour vision. Your dog, for example, and the other mammals have one dimension fewer than we have for color. They see grayscale differences and they can see blue-yellow differences. 
but they don't see an extra dimension that we primates, or some of us primates evolved, which is a red-green dimension. And historically, it was thought that this new red-green dimension that some of us primates have was about finding fruit or leaves in the forest. And I argued a few years ago that, in fact, it seems to have the signature properties that you'd expect if it's for seeing emotions and health on other people or other primates' faces. So it turns out that when you blush and you blanch and you flush and you get red with anger and all of these kinds of color signals that our bodies do and our skin does, it's because of the way the blood changes its nature. You get more oxygenated and less oxygenated blood, for example, that it shows. And this oxygenation of hemoglobin turns out to be a very peculiar thing to see and you have to have a very peculiar kind of color vision in order to be able to see it. It turns out that our primate color vision has exactly that peculiarity, allowing it to see these variations in oxygenation that our color signaling relies upon. So that was one of the main arguments for it. The other argument was that the primates with color vision are the ones that are naked, that have naked faces, naked rumps, naked genitalia. The ones that don't have color vision, like us, are furry-faced, like your typical mammal. So we evolved to see red and green colors in order to be able to read the levels of oxygen in people's blood through their skin and you can only see people's skin if they're naked that's right you uh, and even a camera for example which does have red green it has three cones when the cones or the filters are placed in the wrong spot on the spectrum then you aren't sensitive to seeing the kinds of subtle spectral modulations that happen due to the oxygenation of hemoglobin. So you have to have not just an extra dimension beyond that of the other mammals, you have to have the right kind of sensitivity to be able to sense it. If you don't, like dichromats, or those colorblind folks are usually men, um, if you're missing the, the kind of extra cone that we primates evolved, then not only are you missing an extra dimension, but you're, you're specifically missing the one that allows you to better sense the health and emotions of those around you. What about people with different skin colors? How does that work? Across all of the primates, of course, there's a huge ver variety of baseline skin colors, but what's the same across all of us primates and all of us humans is that relative to the starting baseline, the modulations, are, which are all due to the blood, are due to the same blood that we all share. And so even though you started at a potentially slightly different uh, uh, skin tones, it's all the modulations from that baseline that matter. And our eyes are equally sensitive to it no matter what, what the skin color is. So colorblind people or people with red-green blindness aren't as good at reading the emotions from people as people with full color vision. Ideally, one would have data on the emotion side, too, and I'm trying to encourage some people to try to do studies on colorblind folk to see, to find their deficits. You'd like to find that, they're, that, that they do, in fact, have emotional reading deficits. They're emotionally dense. We don't actually have data on that side. We have data, however, on the health side. For 200 years, ever since Dalton, one of the original scientists who in the early days studied color vision, um, was a dichromat. He was colorblind. And ever since then, doctors throughout, the, throughout these 200 years have complained about when they're colorblind, that they have an inability to see and read the health signs on their patients. And there's been 
questions in the American literature as to whether or not colorblind students should be discriminated against. So they shouldn't be allowed to go to medical school. And in some other countries, apparently, you aren't allowed to go to med medical school if you're colorblind. Historically, for thousands of years, color was part of the symptomatology, that is, the lists of things that doctors are supposed to look for on the pallor of the skin. And even today, on something like 25% of the major uh, uh, diseases still list the pallor of the skin. And the reason, effectively, we have oximeters in our eyes. Oximetry is one of these things that we put on babies' feet or whatever when, they come, when, they, when they're born that measures the oxygenation of the blood on that one spot. Um, your eyes effectively have evolved. If you have three-color vision like we primates have, they've evolved to not just sense oxygenation in one spot, to be, but to be an oximetric camera so that when you look at all of the skin, whatever parts you can see, you can see the entire picture of all of the gradient of oxygenation on that skin. And that provides a wealth of information for health and emotion. Many of the sorts of things that we sense, we may not even have good uh, words uh, to describe. And you've actually developed some technologies that are based on this understanding of what color vision is for that can change the way people see color. That's right. So, uh, you know, recently I, uh, uh, my colleague Tim Barber and I, we started a research institute and the, and the idea was to study cognitive science, continue studying artificial intelligence, the kinds of things that I've studied over the years in various topics. But the idea of the institute was to fund ourselves through spin-off uh, technology. So we got to thinking, once we know that the way in which the eyes and our color vision is optimized or, or rigged to measure and see the oxygenation and the blood that's inside the skin, um, and even though it's well-optimized evolutionarily, it turns out that there's it's well-optimized in the sense that the, the, the wavelength sensitivities of our cones are optimized for this. It turns out that there's some noise that comes from the hemoglobin as it varies its oxygenation. And some of this noisy parts of the spectrum, if we can block those parts, then you actually can see these oxygenation changes even better. So the idea is, with we have actually several technologies, but the, the main one that we uh, uh, is, is this that identifies these very narrow bands of wavelengths that in fact hurt your ability to see these oxygenations and variations. And by blocking that, then you are even, even better at seeing these emotional and health modulation. So a color normal person now sees them um, even more strongly, whether it's for poker playing or everyday life, or whether it's a medical personnel wanting to better read the health of a patient. So you could play poker and instead of having glasses that let you read the cards, you have glasses that actually let you read the people. Uh, exactly. And you can have, we also have prototype O2 lamps now because we're moving into illumination. You can, you can illuminate whole rooms in any of these with using these filters so that everybody in the room can have the same benefits without the need of having sunglasses or eyewear on. The filter that I, what I mentioned is we call it the OxyAmp. It amplifies oxygenation and it doesn't really hinder anything. Now we've got two other technologies. When you look at people's blood and you look at people's skin, you actually see two dimensions of the way that their blood changes. So, for example, if you look at your hand, if you squeeze your, your palm and then let go, you'll see all these variations in the concentration of blood in the skin. Those are more yellow-blue changes that it undergoes. And we have one um, eyewear that it's called the hemo-iso, hemo-isolator. It isolates your perception to just these changes in concentration. But you can no longer see the variations in oxygenation. So, for example, veins are gone which relies upon variations in oxygenation. And then we have another one that's 
that is called an oxyiso rather than the oxyamp, which I mentioned earlier. This one, if you look at your veins, um, there will be much enhanced. You'll see the veins, but you will no longer see the variations in concentration. It just isolates your perception to this other dimension. So each of these two specialized eyewear for medical purposes focuses on one or the other dimension, whereas this oxyamp I mentioned that was just blocking the noise enhances oxygenation, but not at the expense of the other. Well, it turned out that this specialized oxyiso, when we're demonstrating these eyewear to people all over the world, colorblind folks, usually guys, occasionally would put those ones on and they'd say, oh my God, I can see all these red greens. And these are red green colorblind folk who have great difficulty seeing reds and greens and have great difficulty discriminating between them. So they just, it just looks all the same as far as they're concerned, as long as they're the same level of luminance, then they just look the same. But suddenly, um, because they're not completely colorblind, they, they have too few M cones or too few L cones, but they have some, which means that because this amplifies the oxygenation signal so strongly at the expense of everything else, and they have a little bit of red-green sensitivity, but it's really, really weak, one is able to ramp that up and bring suddenly make it so that they can suddenly see red-green differences in the world, which were otherwise too small for them to notice. But we weren't really originally intending, you know, that wasn't really the purpose for it. It was really intended to be, for medical purposes, this particular specialized oxyiso. But we kept getting this feedback, so then we made a call for lots of colorblind folks to call us, and, and we sent out a whole bunch to, to a bunch of colorblind folks, including scientists, who have now given us a lot more testimonials about it, including uh, Daniel Bohr, a scientist uh, from the University of Sussex, who carried out a bunch of experiments as well and gave us a lot more feedback. So these standard Ishihara plate tests where you look at these numbers hidden in these dots, and if you're col red, green, colorblind, you can't see many or, or any of them. And they're all, all of these testimonies are reporting that, that they, people are going from seeing basically none of those to seeing basically all of those. While the testimonials are fascinating, is there any likelihood of clinical trials being conducted? Well, I, I'm not sure if I'd call this quite a clinical trial in the sense of it's, it's uh, uh, but what was, each of these testimonials that are getting back to us are doing these simple Ishihara plate tests, which are very simple uh, tests of red-green, and this is also what uh, the scientist who I mentioned um, had done. He carried out some more complex psychophysics experiments, also uh, showing some other effects, which I won't get into here, helping be better understand um, uh, the mechanism by which this 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 colorblindness aid is working. So as far we're ex, of course excited if people if if independent of us people will go forth and do larger studies that would be great. We'd prefer it to be independent of us because it's at the end of the day it's it's more believable when other folk do it than when when we do it. Science. So Mark, you're no longer. With the university, you've started a company called 2AI, which has a rather unusual way of funding itself. Can you tell me about it? Uh, so, I, you know, I was a professor at RPI, and before that, I was a fellow at, at Caltech. And and one of the problems recurring in academics in the United States and elsewhere is, and there's a lot of folks and a lot of pieces in magazines recently about folks leaving academics, and I was one of these folks. One of the problems with academia is that you get your first position as a graduate student because some professor someplace um, has agreed to let you work in his or her lab. And so after five or six or seven years, you're, you've become an expert in his or her project and you've had very little creativity and freedom yourself. 
you get your first job, your first 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 next thing is a postdoc where you're going to work in some lab that's very similar to what you did for another four, uh, four or six years. Then you get your job, you need to get a grant. Well, you're going to get it in pretty much the same thing that you're good at. It's the only way you're going to be able to get a grant because it's so competitive. Once you've gotten a grant, well, you're the guy or gal that's got a lab now. Last thing you want to be is the person who had a lab but no longer has a lab because that's humiliating. So soon you've spent 20 years in academia and you've been doing the same incremental sorts of things following this grant track. And the path that you've taken may be largely determined on the arbitrariness of the lab who decided to take you as a graduate student. And so if you want to have your intellectual freedom, then you need to have nobody telling you what kind of research that you should work on. So a lot of my career has been designed to try to be, remain aloof from these sorts of things, not going to conferences where I care about the opinions of whole communities and get trapped into their, their kinds of thinking. Choosing, uh, uh, I chose to go to RPI in the first place because it was a smaller university where the grant demands would be less pressing than they would be at some other places. But ultimately, it's still... A, it still drives life in most universities that your next thought is always, okay, I need to apply for up to maybe five or 10 grants to hope to get one. And you're just gaming the system, hoping to find a way to work, say, come up with work to do for three or four years rather than working on what you think is the best thing to work on. So the opportunity came up working with uh, a colleague, Tim Barber, who um, is an AI, artificial intelligence and computer scientist type person. And he was thinking about starting a, a, a independent lab and it seemed to be the right time for me. I had enough under my belt, and the motivation for us was to see whether or not we could remain an independent research institute that focuses on what we deem to be the most fundamental problems, and rather than funding ourselves by going to the government and asking for money or go to or to foundations, to fund ourselves by actually doing something helpful by spinning off intellectual property from our research and seeing if we can turn it into products that help people. So where we've spent our energies is is on this color vision and the implications or the consequences of this theory about color vision and this work on color vision and, and trying to utilize this to harness our eyes to better see passively view the vasculature under the skin is one way of, of, of describing it in terms of medical purposes and or utilizing it to just have a, a better more emotionally satisfying view of other people in the world which is exactly what color vision evolved for in the first place if people want to find out more about your work where should they look online? So our two AI, this is the, the numeral two, followed by AI as in toward artificial intelligence. So it's 2AI.org. And uh, my own research can all be linked from my, in some way or another, from my webpage at Changizi, uh, that's C-H-A-N-G-I-Z-I, -I, um, Changizi.com. Well, Mark Changizi, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ian. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. That was Mark Changizi, Director of Human Cognition at 2AI Labs, talking about the evolution of colour vision in humans and our ability to read people through their skin. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Send email to diffusion at 2SCR.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network, into Sydney on 2SCR 107.3, and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. And now, the sixth and final episode of Natural Selection, the radio play by Lachlan Watmore about the life, journeys, and discoveries 
of the greatest biologist of the modern age, Charles Darwin. This recording was made at 20 kilobits per second from the radio stream in 2003, so please excuse the lower quality. In 1970, 110 years after the famous debate between Wilberforce and Huxley, I was an assistant professor on sabbatical leave at Oxford. By sheer coincidence, I was given an office in the room where Sophie Sam and Darwin's bulldog Huxley had joined battle. By then, the room had been divided into cubicles and crammed with cabinets full of fossils, but in 1860 had been a large open space where the debate had taken place. This had not been forgotten. For six months, I sat right next to a small brass plaque which announced that the great event had occurred right at that very spot. I'd always felt uncomfortable with the official story of the debate. It seemed to me too straightforward. Reason triumphs over superstition, good triumphs over evil. History is rarely so morally unambiguous, so I set out to discover what actually happened. I knew from preliminary browsings that the official version you've just heard is a reconstruction because no stenographer was present. However, I was amazed to read a letter from an eyewitness, a Mr. Balfour Stewart, who was a distinguished scientist and the director of the Kew Observatory. Stewart, who one would assume to be free of religious prejudice, believed that Wilberforce, not Huxley, had won the debate. After lengthy detective work, I discovered that the debate should be looked at in two parts. The first, the exchange between Huxley and Wilberforce, was more like two sequential statements rather than a back-and-forth exchange. Wilberforce basically forgot his manners when he taunted Huxley about descent from his grandmother or his grandfather, and Huxley did not parry his lordship's comments very effectively. Huxley had yet to become the brilliant, impassioned speaker he became famous for, and many of his words were lost in the uproar of the crowd. He had not yet learned how to project his voice and spoke somewhat more softly than Soapy Sam. The second part of the debate is both the role of Joseph Hooker and a glaring mistake made by Wilberforce, both of which have been almost completely overlooked by history. Wilberforce got Darwin's theory completely wrong. He thought that Darwin's mechanism was the same as that of Lamarck, which showed he could never have read Darwin's book. Hooker wrote to Darwin several days later. Well, Sam Oxen got up and spouted for half an hour with inimitable spirit, ugliness and emptiness. Huxley answered admirably and turned the tables, but he could not throw his voice over so large an assembly, nor command the audience. And he did not allude to Sam's weak points, nor put the matter in a form or way that carried the audience. It was therefore Hooker who took his lordship to task. My blood boiled. Now I saw my advantage. I swore to myself that I would smash that Amalekite, Sam, hip and thigh. There and then I smashed him amid rounds of applause. I hit him in the wind, and then proceeded to demonstrate in a few words, one that he could never have read your book, and two, that he was absolutely ignorant in the rudiments of botanical science. Sam was shut up, had not one more word to say in reply, and the meeting was dissolved forthwith. And that's what really happened. There's one thing that should be mentioned here. Fitzroy had indeed been at the meeting. He delivered an address on meteorology, and indeed was one of the founders of weather prediction. But his despair overwhelmed him, as my name became more acclaimed for he could not reconcile himself to my theory. Five years after the debate, on a Sunday morning, 30th of April, 1865, Admiral Robert Fitzroy committed suicide by cutting his own throat.
Darwin lived on for another 22 years after the Oxford meeting and his health somewhat improved. The Origin of Species was published in many editions all over the world and he wrote eight more major works including the preeminently important The Descent of Man. His reputation grew steadily. He was given an honorary doctor's degree at Cambridge and when he attended a lecture at the Royal Institution the whole assembly rose to their feet and applauded him. Charles Darwin is now recognised as the man who provided a foundation for the entire structure of modern biology, but during his lifetime he received no official honour from the state. Darwin died on the 19th of April 1882. He was buried at Westminster Abbey with Huxley, Hooker and Wallace amongst the pallbearers. That was the final episode of Natural Selection, a radio play by Lachlan Watmore. Charles Darwin was played by Dominic Cochran, Thomas Huxley by Scott Lawrence, Joseph Hooker by Chris Stewart, Sam Wilberforce and Alfred Wallace by me, Tim Baines, Robert Fitzroy and Stephen J. Gould by Lachlan Watmore, with Amanda Hamilton and Adam Mark playing the rest. The music for the play was composed by Ludwig von Beethoven, W.A. Mozart, J.S. Bach, G.F. Handel and Mike Oldfield. Natural Selection is dedicated to the loving memories of Stephen J. Gould, a very wise old paleontologist, and Lee Watmore, a very wise old vet. And that's all from us this time on Diffusion. If you'd like to contribute to the show, we need more volunteers on Diffusion. You can send your contributions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to diffusion at 2SCR.com. That's diffusion at 2SCR.com. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to Natural Selection was Dominic Cochran, Tim Baines, Adam Mark, Chris Stewart, Amanda Hamilton, and of course, Lachlan Watmore. I produce Diffusion in the studios of 2SCR in Sydney, and Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Looking at the URL, the first thing that sticks out is the colon. And how about a slashing or cutting sound for the slashes? To complete the experience, we might throw in the HTTP and maybe some kind of download sound. www.diffusionradio.com Lachlan Watmore on guitar. Thank <laughs> you.